HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we're celebrating the food culture of South Carolina with its chef ambassadors. Oh, I'm super excited that it's soft show crab season. <laughs> Those little suckers are delicious. People think, oh, tomato is a tomato. No, there is a, a good tomato and a bad tomato. So when they come to, to Hampton or even, you know, even in South Carolina, you can really find a incredible ingredient. We started getting lettuce from Micro Leon Farms in Conway. He's, it's a, a super sweet family that runs that little farm. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we talk to Chef Andy Husbands. Husbands now operates a smoke shop, a Boston-based emerging chain of barbecue restaurants. He's a six-time cookbook author and, importantly, a pit master. He's the co-founder of an internationally recognized barbecue team, which competed for 20 years and became the first non-Southern team champions of barbecue title at the Jack Daniels World Championship in Tennessee. I've been privileged to watch Andy Moore from being a sort of enfant terrible to becoming an incredible force in the Boston culinary scene. Andy is a person of immense management talents as well as food talents. He could have gone in a million different directions. How did it become food? Fourth grade, I did a demo on how to make donuts. And... I was passionate about cooking at home. And it does beg the question, which parent or why were my parents allowing me to cook donuts at home? This is the 70s. I am what you call a latchkey kid. So I would come home and just do whatever I wanted. And I wanted to make donuts. And so I got my joy of cooking. And, you know, I knew nothing about yeast and I knew nothing about temperature of oil. I just wanted to make donuts. And kind of fast forward, food has been something that's been 
very prevalent in my life, but we were not a family that woke up and like, what are we going to have for dinner? Or even, you know, our food wasn't that great. My mother is, is a fantastic cook. My father was a normal grill cook, you know, out back grilling country style ribs or something with Casey's masterpiece. But it was something that I don't know. I like the creativity of it. And I also think I got recognition for doing it. So I probably liked that as well. When I got to high school, uh, I needed a job. So I worked at a place called Hazel's Bakeries, making donuts and other things like that, breads. And Chef Ken was the world's meanest pastry chef at the time for me. You know, I would go in at four in the morning on Saturdays and he would just be so intense listening to, if you're from Boston, WJLB, ding, ding, right on Boston's waterfront. It was like Muzak. You know, you'd hear a Michael Jackson song that was Muzak. And, but I loved it in retrospect I kind of had a wild upbringing. My father, who's deceased, managed punk rock bands as I grew up. And so there wasn't maybe a lot of stability. So the stability is what I think I found in kind of that family in a restaurant. You know, I started in the bakery. Then I worked at the Pillar House. Chef Alan Gibson, you know, he kind of helped teach me. And I, I wanted that. I applied to two schools for college. And again, no one really told me what to do or, oh, you're going to college or you've got to go here. I'm like, I just want to go cook. This sounds fun to me. I will tell you, I was a solid C minus student. Solid. I barely got out of there. I think kind of everybody wanted me out of there. So they let me, <laughs> let me go. But it, when I got to college, straight A's, every class. And I loved it. I loved the challenge. I was good or better than everybody else. I loved the teamwork. I loved the creativity. I got my first real line job working on Block Island in the summers. For me, it was just a natural progression. This is 30 years ago. Fast forward, my life has progressed even more such that I have other passions. I love teams. I love the management. I love the marketing. I love the creativity. Your career as a chef changes drastically from working on the line to actual running restaurants or a restaurant group at this point. So why restaurants? Because I don't know. It was fun and fun for me. And I was passionate about it. And I, and I still am to this day. And I'm one of the fortunate ones who gets to do what he likes to do every day. But quite honestly, I just can't imagine your parents letting you there with the vats of boiling oil. But, <laughs> this, but, but nobody was there. This is latchkey, right? So I would come home, make myself an omelet. I remember this. And then I would start cooking. It's because I what it's what I wanted to do, and you know I wasn't really allowed to watch TV though I would sometimes. No one was there. This is a different world. I know people don't quite have it that way, and my children don't have it that way, you know, or won't. <laughs> Amazing! Amazing! I did not know that you got your start as a donut chef. <laughs> <laughs> Before your barbecue interest, you mm -hmm. were already doing food that was two giant steps ahead in terms of its. It's edginess, it's uh, flavor-forward stuff. That everybody, where'd you get that? I've always kind of been brash. I've always been kind of out there. I've always wanted to push the limits in everything. After I graduated college at Johnson & Wales, the plan was to go to Europe, which I did, and spend about three months there, and come back and move to New York and become a famous chef. That was the plan. This is uh, 1992, I believe, maybe 91. But I was broke. So I knew a guy, Nick, Nick Zappia. He, he had managed a restaurant I worked in Providence. So we, I'd known him. And he's like, come come to the East Coast Grill and meet Chris Lessinger. And I knew who Chris Lessinger was. 
I was scared and, you know, nervous and I needed to make some money. So I'm like, I'll just do whatever they need. I came in. I remember Chris, this is 10 in the morning on a Tuesday. Uh, I walk in, Chris cracks a bud tall and looks at me and asks me if I want one which I, I declined, but I think I could have had it and still gotten the job. And I worked for Chris Lessinger. I can't say enough great things about him. And the, those you know that he owned the East Coast Grill. The East Coast Grill in its heyday in 1984, who was grilling and doing big flavors? He's just an incredible chef. And he taught me so much about big flavors. And I fell in love with it. You know, he was doing food from warm climate areas. So that was American South. That was Caribbean. That was Southeast Asia. Like a kid in a candy store. I loved every minute of it. Also, he had a barbecue restaurant right next door. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest, this he never lets me live this down. One of the biggest fights we ever had was he wanted me to work there one day a week and I didn't want to because I wanted to be a fancy chef. <laughs> and he's like, and now look at you. Now, now you own barbecue restaurants. Honestly, before this time, 1991, 92, I don't think I'd ever had pulled pork. I don't think I'd ever had a real barbecue rib. I don't think I've ever had brisket before that moment I walked into East Coast Grill. If you think about the North, and I actually was born in Seattle, that wasn't really available to us. I fell in love with it and the big flavors. And I just kind of, it's just been, you know, I'm lucky that it's just a path that's kind of been given to me. And I've, I've gone down many roads. I mean, many, many people, you just see the successes. I've had plenty of failures, but I've kind of been able to find my path and find what's exciting to me. And lucky enough, the customer and our guests have all come along for the ride. You became a pit master. Tell me what that whole <laughs> scene was like for a nice sure. boy from New England. <laughs> pit master is a term like chef, like everybody is one, right? Everybody wants to be a pit master, but nobody wants to be a pit master, meaning that it takes a lot, a lot of work. What happened was early into the opening of Train Mod 647, my business partner and best friend and high school mate, Chris Hart, decided he wanted to leave for many reasons. In the beginning, Train Mod 647 was not doing very well. We had some financial stress, as well as he was a new father and the, you know, the hours are daunting. And it was a big to-do for us. It was kind of a breakup, and it was very sad. And, you know, I couldn't understand why he didn't want to do it. I'm like, how could he not want to do this? This is the best job ever. It's all I've ever wanted to do. But he had other goals. So he left, and it was sad. It was a divorce. We didn't talk for probably six months. Then, I don't know what happened, but we reached out, and we had heard about a barbecue competition. We thought, let's go do this. I think it was us kind of really saying, let's spend time together, you know, and we spent a weekend at something called the Pig and Pepper. It was in Acton, Mass. It rained all weekend. It was cold. We drank too much. Our tents fell down and we had the best weekend ever. We came away with a little like three inch chicken trophy for third place chicken and we were hooked. We built a team. I'd like to be clear that I'm actually not the lead pitmaster on our barbecue team. It is Chris Hart, even though he's actually more in the, the tech world. He is our lead pitmaster. He's so talented. And we just fell in love with it. For the first five years, we, we competed and we lost a lot. And we... It was a week, you know, think of it a weekend of fishing with your buddies, right? A lot of bourbon, a lot of cussing, and a lot of competition. And we would do this nine, ten times a year. It was so much fun. About five, six years into it, we doubled down. And we said, 
We're tired of losing. We're tired of almost getting there. And really, as Chris, I mean, with a lot of research, there's a bunch of reasons why we we got really good, but we got really good. And some molecular stuff that we, I kind of brought to the table that I had seen. We did some logarithms and tracked everything, how we cooked it. So we kind of figured out a way to track better and, and become better at cooking. Some secret sauces, secret rubs, secret injections. And we just ended up becoming the first non-Southern team to win the world championships at Lynchburg, Tennessee at the Jack Daniels Distillery. No other non-Southern team had ever done that. And that's kind of how it happened. And while I just told that story in a couple minutes, it, it took a long time. And like any sport, you have to do the work. And that's really what it was, is us doing the work us learning how to cook barbecue at a competition level, which think of it like NASCAR. You can't just get in a NASCAR and drive it. You've got to learn it. So you had to build the whole rig. Like the the, sm- the smoking equipment? Yeah. There's a lot out there, and this is a while back, but there's more now. But we kind of jimmied it. You know, we figured out, we used what was out in the marketplace and then kind of made it our own and made it work optimal when and you know you really need to learn how a fire works with meat it's not just as simple to make good barbecue is pretty easy to make great barbecue is infinitely complicated and and then to make world championship barbecue whew, that's it's just a it's it's incredible it, it was an incredible day an incredible achievement for us and what are the other people like most of them are not professional chefs. And in fact, that was kind of our arrogance is coming in of saying, oh, we're professional chefs and we know we run restaurants. We know how to do this. You know, our team is made up of other chefs, other restaurateurs, tech guys, firemen, all different people. We have a kind of an eclectic group of people. Some of them are just barbecue people, which means they grew up, you know, when you go down south, a lot of them are people that own barbecue restaurants, but some of them are just that's what they do is compete. Some of them are electricians, engineers, lawyers, doctors, dentists. People would be wrong to judge a group of people and think they're a bunch of hillbillies or something. That is farthest from the truth. These are very serious people. When we were really competing, that means you're doing 15 to 20 events a year. It's going to cost you $20,000 easily a year. You know, gas, food, uh, lodging, just everything. It's, it's just really expensive. So it's an expensive hobby. Or, or sport. It's, you know, it's like, like golf or fishing. So I owned Tremont for 21 years, but at year 18, I was bored. You know, it was running. I was doing okay. Do anything for 18 years. It's a long time. And yes, I could change the menu all the time. I can do all that stuff, but I was ready for another thing in my life. And there's some stuff that I'm really good at and I'm some, some stuff I'm not really good at. What I'm really good at is building teams managing those teams, working with a group, marketing is a big passion of mine, and then, of course, the food. Those are things I'm passionate about. The lawyering, the leasing, the insurance, the payroll, all that stuff that is probably, in some ways, more important than the food that gets to your table for running a business. I was successful, but it just wasn't what I was passionate about. So uh, I got lucky enough to meet my business partner now. We got together and we, we said, let's open a, a, a couple units of something. That was the plan. And we went off to find a space. And, and my plan at that time was to do an izakaya, a Japanese pub. Then the next question should be, 
So what do you know about Japanese pubs? Correct. Uh, <laughs> I know I love them, and I know I love to go to them. But if we're really honest with myself, I don't. I don't know how to cook it. And I was taking some lessons. A Japanese chef friend of mine was giving me some lessons, and it was becoming pretty obvious that that probably wasn't going to be my route. But I, I, that's what I wanted to do. Oh, this could be cool. And I had some fun ideas. And then Brian looked at me one day and said, why aren't we doing barbecue? And I told him I hadn't even thought of it. Really, that was just my sport. That was fun for me. It wasn't was something I wanted to do for, for a living. And so I said, let me think about it. And I had to actually go do some research because I had to think about the menu and I had to think about how I would do it because what's important to me is not just cooking great food, but serving great food. So there's a difference, right? Anybody can cook great food in your backyard, or most people could, but actually serving it all day is a, is a challenge. And how would I do that? Because I wanted to do something really, really good. About four days later, I came back and said, let's go for it. Let's do barbecue. We opened up Kendall Square to tons of customers and really great response. And it took us a little while to kind of figure out exactly how to do it. And then every year we've opened up another one. But yeah, we're going to continue growing this. And it's been just an amazing, amazing ride. We'll be back with Andy in a minute, and we'll hear how his career evolved from one edgy restaurant to an enterprise with multiple locations and over 200 employees. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a cheese landian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. And we're back with Andy Husbands. Within the community of young, especially male chefs in Boston, <laughs> you are the inheritor of the Chris Sessinger mantle. But what is it, as you said, cooking isn't the hard part. Making it all happen is the hard part. I always used to say when I had my restaurants, the food is the easy part. The people are the hard part. What's your pep talk that you would give to a young chef about how to put together a team, how to manage a team, how to make it happen? That's a great, let's see. So, of course, you're seeing me at a, at a really good place in my life. It took me a long time to learn a lot of lessons. You know, Chris Schlesinger, as you mentioned, he really helped me focus on team. I was so surprised I actually got two days off in a row. Things like that are obvious to most people in most industries, but, you know, it's something that we really want to happen. Always having two days off, not overworking your team. And Chris really stressed the point to me that just because you might be the quarterback doesn't mean you score the touchdowns. And so you need to make sure your team is acknowledged and, and treated with respect. So clearly setting your expectations and then letting loose, giving up control. If you try to control everything, that is, is a problem because you can't, and therefore you're going to always fail. So letting our general managers run their store, right? Letting the, the kitchen managers run the pits. They know how to do it. I've trained them. 
And so let them do what they do, what they're paid to do. I think sometimes chefs, we get arrogant, we get conceited, we think it's about us, and it's like, oh my, it has to be this way, and you'll end up failing without really recognizing and working with the team. Schlesinger used to always say this one thing to me. It's like, I'd make a special, and he goes, that's a great special, Andy. Really, really tasty. Nice job. He goes, but that will never go on the menu because you have to be here. What I want is something that goes on the menu that you don't have to be here to cook. I don't understand the chefs who, like, I have to work every day. I have to work all the time. That doesn't make sense because then they take vacations. So why aren't they there? Is the quality bad when they're not there on vacation? To me, when, when I hear someone say they have to work all the time, it, 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 all I hear is you're a bad manager. When people are like, I don't want to go unless you're there. Unless you mean they want to see you. But otherwise, if it's not good when I'm not there, it, it, there's a problem. You've always been incredibly active, especially around kids' food and hunger yes. and things like that. Where does that come from in you? So, you know, I remember my parents split up when I was very young. I remember being with my mother in first grade. I remember getting to pay a special amount for lunch, 10 cents or something. I remember having funny money to buy our food. I know that I'm fortunate. I know that I'm able to eat whatever I want. I'm really aware that people are less fortunate. And I think it's my obligation as a leader to show that I care and that I can support my community. I also remember in business school, I had a professor and he pulled me aside and he goes, yeah, he goes, you're doing really good in school. He goes, he goes, you're, you're, you're going to get an A in this class. You're doing great. But you just sit in the corner and you're quiet. He's like, you need to be involved. He goes, what do you do for charity? You need to get involved. So I started doing some with the uh, restaurant I, was, I worked with who actually worked with Share Our Strength. So that was my introduction to them, uh, which is now No Kid Hungry. And it just felt right. And I love helping out people. I, you know, a community is much stronger when, when we all work together. I would tell you one of the hardest things about COVID is that I have to say no to charities. It makes me very sad is there's actually more need. But it's really difficult um, because we'll survive, but we are, you know, fighting to survive. You have young children. You were not a particularly young father. And now you have two little people. How has learning about being a father and feeding them and all of that, what do you think that's done to you and what do you feed them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm an older father. My And my daughters are uh, three years old. They're twins, Millicent and Esther. Loves of my life. Um, wow. Uh, it's, you know, it's a worthy challenge. There's nothing more than I do want to spend time with them. I'm always kind of trying to look at the sunny side. When I was 25, when I was 30, I was doing those hours that, that you read about as, as chefs do when they're young in their career. I'm glad that I'm at the different part of my career where I can be home most weekends. I can be home most nights when they start doing their recitals or whatever they choose to do that I'm able to go because my schedule is more flexible than working a, a, a hot station, a line station all, every night or five nights a week or six nights a week, week or whatever. I'm really proud of that and I'm really excited to see them grow. I find my heart breaks more for children that are of need now that I have children. I can't imagine my daughter's not having food, so it makes me want to work harder to help alleviate hunger for children. 
And what do I feed them? God, anything they'll eat. How about that? My children are not little foodies, though my do- one of my daughters is loves to be in the kitchen with me, so maybe she'll learn to cook. I certainly want them to learn to cook. I want them to make a perfect chicken, you know, so they won't be dependent on anybody but themselves to make themselves great meals, should they choose. I'd prefer they didn't go into this industry, but if they want to, they can. The cool part is we have a garden. And they love the tomatoes out of the garden, sun golds. They love them. They're like candy to them. They love cucumbers. So, you know, we're trying to turn them on to food, but really it's macaroni and cheese and, you know, everything else that every other three-year-old eats. Do you see uh, yourself with a child standing on the stool, frying up a batch of donuts at like nine or ten? <laughs> Millie was really interested in learning how to make pasta. So, you know, we have a pasta maker. Maybe maybe she'll want to learn. But will I let her come home in uh, fourth grade and make her own donuts? No. My wife, my wife would not have that. <laughs> this is good, Andy. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 